Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview, I'm joined by veteran and teacher Lisa Cardnell, who's now running for Congress in Texas's second congressional district. Elisa Cardinal, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Edward. As I mentioned just then in the introduction, you've served in the U.S. military, specifically as a anti-submarine warfare officer in the Navy. And after that, you returned to Texas to teach. Why have you decided to run for office? What sparked that interest in your mind? What pushed you towards that? Uh, well, as you mentioned, service has been a part of my history for my whole life. I was actually born on an army base in West Germany, and I knew my my first service it was time for me to step up after 9-11 happened when I was in high school, which is why I joined the Navy in the first place. And when I came home from deployment, I had developed some pre-existing conditions and I was still able to serve in the reserves for six years while I was teaching. But I saw the Republican Party here uh, trying to take away coverage for those of us with pre-existing conditions and requiring prescription drugs to take care of us. And so when I saw that, and I had to ultimately leave the Navy because of those conditions, so I knew that when a far-right Republican won my my swing district here in Houston, it was time for me to step up and serve again. Talking about that service and that sense of duty that you feel, on your website you state that after leaving active duty, you face the realities of our broken veterans' healthcare system. From your personal experience and your understanding of that, what do you think needs to be done to fix the Veterans Affairs Department and the treatment veterans receive? And is, is that really part of one of the reasons you ran? Because you felt after serving in the US military, you understood that things needed to change for veterans and you felt that duty to do your part where you could for, for those that you served alongside. So that is definitely part of it. Um, so what I was talking about on the website is when I was first looking to use the VA hospital system for my health care uh, for those pre-existing conditions that are service-connected, it was very difficult to get my first appointment. I first tried several years ago. I put in a request by telephone and never heard back. And my local hospital, even though it is in Houston, the fourth largest city in the country, it does not have online scheduling that is conducive to doing um, patient intake for the first time. Uh, so ultimately, it took uh, many phone calls on endless loops. It took uh, finding a website and doing a workaround through the website, essentially trying to get into a different hospital to get my first appointment um, locally. And so once I have gotten in, I will say the care has been very well, uh, very good. But getting in was a challenge. And that's something that a lot of folks don't have the time or the resources to fight that battle. You talked there about having a website. You mentioned the website that you sought to use and the online service that you attempted to get treatment through. According to the Veterans Affairs Office of the Inspector General, there's a health records 
backlog that's five miles high that they're trying to digitize. How massive an issue is that in ensuring that veterans who need healthcare treatment, whose records have been collected in this old paper system, are given the support, are also recognized and acknowledged by the VA and reached out to if they need to be? You know, I think that digitizing the medical records is, it's a huge concern um, and making sure that those are available uh, because when you sh- come in, if it's your record's not digital, especially if you need something like emergency care, you need to have those those pieces of information that your providers need uh, right then and there. And I will tell you that from my time in the service, your medical record is usually kept on a paper copy because when you transfer from, say, Norfolk, Virginia to I, when I came back to Houston, I was stationed at Ellington Field as a reservist. And so I brought my medical record with me. And um, actually, my original record from active duty is with the VA. And I'm not sure they have digitized all of it. In the United States, a country that claims to never forget its veteran sacrifice, how did it get to this place where veterans are neglected by the department that was established to support them after their service? Because many Americans, many people looking in will have that question. Yeah, and especially in an era where we have been at war for 18 years and we have kids born now who uh, are old enough to have been ser- to start serving after 9-11, this is something that I really feel we have to take care of our veterans more than ever. And I think ultimately this is just another example of what tends to be the Republican playbook. They they privatize to some degree a system, whether it's veteran affairs, whether it's education. And then they say, oh, look, it's not working because, of course, now it's underfunded. And so because it's underfunded, it's not working. They say, well, just excuse to privatize even further. And it's really all based off the fact that we have politicians and not public servants. And they're all about those campaign contributions. That issue with campaign contributions is one that a lot of people on the Democratic side have really hit on in this electoral cycle, this 2019-2020 electoral cycle. How damaging is it to America's electoral system and political system? Is this influence that money and large corporations can have on politics, shaping the debate, shaping what is pushed through in Congress? And how can that be changed? Do you think people should be pushing for Uh, policies that completely strip the ability for these large corporations to have any financial impact on candidates? So I think that the impact of of corporate money on politics is devastating to democracy with a a little d. Um, And so I think that one of the things that we have to do is this absolute interpretation of our First Amendment um, as written in the end citizens or in the Citizens United um, Supreme Court case, that we need to overturn that. We need to make sure that corporations, while you know, for some purposes having them as a person for things like liability, is useful in campaign finance. That's it takes the power of the everyday American and eliminates it. 
So um, we also need to have more transparency for all political giving. Um, so things like super PACs uh, need to have much more transparency in where their money is coming from and where it's going. Congress is really divided between different political parties. And when there's an issue that doesn't seem to gather much bipartisan support, such as tackling the issue of money in politics, how is it possible to get that through Congress? Even if Democrats retained control of the House, won over control of the White House, if they didn't have control of the Senate, it's going to be near impossible to get policies like that through Congress. So how would you tackle that as a member of Congress if elected? So I think that you're we're exactly right saying the Senate is a stone wall uh, towards getting any of these reforms passed. And part of what I will do when I get to the House is to back another campaign ethics reform bill like we had this session, including campaign finance reform uh, and ending gerrymandering. One of the ways we can actually take back the Senate is we came very, very close here in Texas in 2018. And actually, my district is one of the tipping point districts for taking the Senate seat here that is up in 2020 for the Senate. That's actually a really interesting point about Texas, because a lot of people probably traditionally picture Texas as a deep red state. But in 2018, Beto O'Rourke, who's now running for president, showed that Texas can actually be a purple seat where it can go between Democrats and Republicans. So it, it's all to play for, really. Texas is not just a really important seat for individuals like yourself who are running for specific districts, but on a national level, it's going to play a really important role in 2020. And I'm sure you'd say that's why it's really important for voters to show up and turn up at the polls because they have a real impact to decide the future of not just seats like your own, but the presidency. That's exactly right. And that is something that a lot of us have been saying in Texas in the last two years is that Texas was never really a red state. It was a non-voting state. Um, a lot of that was driven by voter suppression tactics from the other side. We are not a state where it is easy to register uh, we only just recently here in Harris County implemented uh, countywide voting centers for the upcoming elections so folks can vote not just in their precinct but anywhere in the county on election day, which helps because a lot of us commute to and from work or school. And so really this is something that we saw in 2018 is that when the Democrats are energized, uh, we can flip a lot of seats. And here in Harris County, home to Houston, we are the third largest county in the country. And we we flipped just about every countywide seat from red to blue in the last election. The issue of voter suppression is one that's really taken off in the last 12 months, where it's come to the forefront of political debate in a way that it never was before. Not that it wasn't an issue, it was more just not acknowledged by politicians. And now we see individuals like Stacey Abrams taking the fight to voter suppression with her work with the organization Fair Fight. Um, why do you think that politicians want to restrict the right 
for individuals to vote because surely in a democracy all politicians would want everyone to have equal access to the polls and the ability to show up and make their voice heard so why is there voter suppression what's the drive behind it in your eyes uh, you know, I think a lot of it is rooted in a lot of our historic systems of suppression we have in this country that we've never fully fixed. I also think that the folks that are in power, as much as we would love to idealize them, they want to stay in power. And so especially in places where there are ways to implement these rules and they haven't ever been questioned, if they can get away with it, we will see that they we see that they do do that. When it comes to the issue of vote suppression, one of the reasons behind it is the difficulties individuals face, the barriers that are presented for individuals when they're trying to register to vote in the first place and how they can ultimately be taken off voter registration rolls because of various technicalities or issues that are further presented by legislatures. Do you think that a policy that would be beneficial for tackling this issue would be that all individuals at the age of 18, when they turn 18, are automatically registered as voters in America unless they decide for whatever reason to opt out? So everyone in America will be automatically added on to the voter registration rolls at the age of 18. Um, I do think that that is a good policy. And just to clarify, we do have folks here who aren't citizens. We welcome our immigrants here. And so as long as every citizen, when they turn 18, it's automatic. Yeah, I think that's a great system. I also think that online registration uh, for, vote, for voter registration is something that's easily doable. And here in Texas, we don't have that. Uh, it would be nice if we did. And that's one of the other problems is it varies state by state what the rules and policies are. The issue of immigration, which you touched on very briefly in that answer there, is one that's particularly important to voters in Texas, where you're seeking to be elected. The current president of the United States has proposed building a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, which would involve going along Texas. He's attacked Democrats for being unwilling to secure the southern border. That's his claim that Democrats are unwilling. What approach would you take to secure American borders? And how do you respond to his claim that Democrats and the approach they're taking shows that Democrats are unwilling to address this issue of border security? Well, like a lot of things that comes from our current president, there's a lot of noise. Um, but honestly, we already have over 600 miles of wall at the border that have been in place since long before Trump's presidency. And our immigration policies and national security policy are intertwined, but by no means does having a secure border eliminate the possibility and in fact the mandate to have a humane immigration policy. And so, by making sure that we know who's coming into our country, uh, by actually staffing the, the points of entry uh, at the appropriate levels for the immigration we are seeing, and then um, making sure that we have the facilities and the personnel in place to process the people who arrive, uh, that is something that we absolutely must do. Uh, because right now, we are on the wrong side of history, and that's just unacceptable. 
You accept the immigration system in America is, quote, broken and needs to be fixed. But what would you do to improve the system? What do you think Congress needs to do to improve the system and to provide a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, for example? Right. So I could actually um, you'll appreciate this. I have experienced the immigration system firsthand through my, my now ex-husband is British. He grew up in Dartford, and I met him uh, while I was here at uh, when I was in college, and he was here for grad school. So I have actually experienced this, and I think that we have a lot of um, immigration policies that make it very easy for someone like him to get his citizenship. He has a Ph.D., he is white, frankly, and um, so people don't bat an eye at my daughter, who is blonde-haired and blue-eyed and the daughter of an immigrant. But when we have folks that are coming from other countries where we limit the number of visas and you have a literal lottery to come into the country, it's very difficult to tell someone to just wait their turn and come in legally because, to be honest, that wait can be decades. Do you think that one of the reasons that Donald Trump has chosen to target immigrants and in a way victimize them is because it's part of a wider idea in his political agenda to create division, to create an us versus them situation in America and that's the approach that he's taking, particularly heading into 2020, as part of his wider presidential campaign to push out the vote from his right wing or potentially far right wing supporters. You know, I do think that is something he does purposely um, is to create division and fear amongst our population. But I don't think that Trump is actually the the cause of it. This is something that has been present in our society, honestly, since we began. Um, and I think it's actually, in a way, I think it is good that we can now reckon with this and try to improve ourselves as a country. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're not just a veteran, but you now work as a teacher in Texas. You have first-hand experience of America's education system, and there have been numerous reports about the failings within the system, from overcrowding to a lack of funding for teachers, um, which have resulted in those who work in education having to purchase supplies for their own pupils. As someone who has that experience, as someone who's a teacher, what grade would you give America's education system? Oh, wow. Um, well, I am the product of a public education here in the United States, and my daughter's school is a wonderful neighborhood school. Um, but I think we definitely have a lot of room for improvement. So I'd say I'd give it a C. You mentioned on your website the legacy of No Child Left Behind, the overuse of standardized testing. Why have these issues in particular been so damaging to America's education system? Why have they had such a problematic impact? 
So the No Child Left Behind mandated high-stakes standardized testing for every student in the country that was in a public school. And so what we saw is ideally on paper that would have been great, right? You measure achievement and you can figure out which schools are successful and which ones need help. But in reality, what happened is corporations were able to design these tests that they then sold to schools. They purposely designed them so that they do not test at grade level. They, in fact, the only thing they measure accurately is socioeconomic status. And so then they are allowed, these companies are allowed to turn around and sell remediation um, products to these schools. Schools that are lower income already lose out on funding because they're not performing to quote unquote standards. And we just perpetuate the vicious cycle of the poor schools are not given enough to even maintain where they are. One of the major issues when it comes to school and education is this talk of a school to prison pipeline in America, where students are pushed out of school into prisons, criminalizing youth through disciplinary policies and practices within the education system in a way that puts students into contact with law enforcement. Uh, these are seen on a regular basis through news reports, posts on social media, etc. How can the education system be improved to tackle and eliminate this pipeline? Well, I think in terms of the education system, we need to provide the counseling resources that are necessary for the student bodies that we have. We have not nearly enough school counselors and mental health professionals working in schools. And right now, a lot of that burden falls on teachers in addition to all of the other many tasks that we have. Um, but ultimately, I think it's not just the school system. It's also the for-profit prison system where they design how many beds they're going to need for prison based off how many kids are born. You mentioned there the for-profit prison system. Do you think a key issue with eliminating the issues that exist in America's prison system and also this school to prison pipeline is by removing the existence of these for-profit prisons because surely justice and the criminal justice system shouldn't be about making money. It should be about putting forward the appropriate disciplinary procedures and rehabilitating these individuals so that they can be reintegrated back into civilian life. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, eliminating for-profit prisons is part of the solution to several problems. And for far too long in our country, we have criminalized being poor and being of color. Recently, Hurricane Dorian was heading towards the United States. And fortunately, it didn't have the devastating impact on the vast areas of the United States that it was originally predicted to do, although it did have a devastating impact on the areas that it did make landfall on. As the hurricane was bearing down on southern states in the US, the Trump administration was taking $155 million from FEMA to fund its effort to return undocumented migrants to Mexico. What would you do if 
elected to stop Donald Trump and his administration from reappropriating disaster relief funds for his own personal policies. And beyond that, not just Donald Trump, but other presidents from using FEMA funds, disaster relief funds for their own domestic agenda. Right. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying there are very, very few scenarios in which I win my seat and Donald Trump stays president, um, just based on the demographics and the, the voting patterns here in the district. But um, in terms of future presidents, I think that's something that Congress is not only authorized, but obligated to use its oversight powers. And it explicitly has the power of the purse strings and making sure that Congress, both the House and the Senate, work together to limit presidential overreach in this case um, is an integral part of the job. And here in Houston, this particular issue hits very close to home with the disaster funding um, because here Hurricane Harvey hit two years ago. And parts of my district also had a major flood in May, and then were just hit by Tropical Storm Imelda just last week. And those residents have been flooded two or three times in the last few years. And to be honest, they're still waiting for relief from Hurricane Harvey. We see that the attitudes that the Trump administration has when it comes to disaster relief efforts, the Trump administration praised the situation, the recovery effort in Puerto Rico, despite the thousands of deaths that occurred in Puerto Rico and the fact that vast swathes of that island were left with a lack of energy for months because of the slow response that came from the federal government. When you see areas like Puerto Rico and you know, this also applies to Washington, D.C. Do you think that U.S. territories should have statehood and the right to representation, voting representation in Congress so that they can have a voice and they can raise opposition against when these things happen and state why it's so important that they receive the same treatment as other U.S. citizens? You know, that's a very good point. And uh, over 200 years ago, we fought a war over that very issue, taxation without representation. Um, and I think that it's, a, it's still a valid point today is that we have American citizens who don't have a, a voting member in Congress uh, to represent them. And I think that we need to make sure that those folks' voices are heard as well. As a science teacher, you state that you, quote, base your opinions on facts and research, which used to be a requirement for elected officials, but now seems to be an increasingly rare trait that is a quality people are looking for in elected officials. With there being an increasing number of people who refuse to address or acknowledge climate change because it's not in their political interest, how would you get Congress your colleagues in Congress, if you're elected, to act to tackle this environmental issue? Because we saw Greta Thunberg recently speak at the UN General Assembly in New York to highlight how this is going to be an issue that affects generations to come. And 
the world that is being left to the next generation. Right. And, you know, here's the thing is even though I do base my decisions on facts and on evidence, that's not really what changes people's minds. What changes people's minds is their experiences. And, well, honestly, I'd invite everyone who doesn't believe in climate change to come live in Houston for a few years and experience our flooding. But I think that by sharing these stories and continuing to demonstrate the very tangible consequences of climate change that we see in terms of more extreme weather events, uh, events that are supposed to be rare and infrequent are happening here in Houston on an annual basis. We are getting quote unquote, 500 year floods annually. And I think that that really is the way to convince folks is to show them the, not only the human impact, but the economic impact that has on areas that are hit. We talked earlier about your experience of the Veterans Affair health system, your experience in the military. You've stated how due to your experience with TRICARE in the Navy, you know that a large healthcare system will need to be carefully planned, financed and implemented to be truly accessible for all. What healthcare system that's been proposed so far or that you've seen that you would support instead, do you think would achieve that? So... Um, I have to start out by saying healthcare is a human right, and I think that there haven't been any of the plans that I can fully buy into yet, but there are four things that I am looking for in a healthcare plan that I would support. The first thing is that every American must have coverage, and so that means that there will be no more underinsured or uninsured Americans in any plan that I can, that I can back. Uh, the second thing is that we talk a lot about the cost of healthcare here. And all of the discussion that we are having about Medicare for all or about a private option or about expanding the Affordable Care Act, none of them are actually about your doctor. They're about how your doctor gets paid. It's about a conversation of whether you pay your doctor, whether insurance pays your doctor, or whether the government does. And ultimately, the plan that I will support will be cost efficient across all the ways that the money is uh, is raised for this. So right now we pay co-pays, deductibles, premiums, employers pay payroll taxes, and the government also uh, provides coverage for folks. And so out of all of those pots of money, there's a lot of care that needs to be provided, but it needs to be done cost efficiently. The third thing is that um, we absolutely need to make sure that men, uh, mental health, dental, vision, women's health, and veterans' health are all covered. So right now we have a lot of senior citizens who need hearing aids or dentures that aren't currently covered even under the current Medicare plan, and so that needs to be incorporated. Uh, and the fourth and final thing is that we absolutely need to make sure that the cost of prescription drugs is manageable under the plan that I would support. Um, I have seen my asthma inhaler cost $27 with insurance or cost almost $150 without 
or be free through TRICARE. And so I think that making Medicare or whichever program it is negotiate prescription drug prices with the companies providing these is paramount to making sure that this is sustainable. You mentioned there four approaches you take to improving healthcare in America. But despite the passing of President Barack Obama's flagship piece of legislation, the Affordable Care Act in 2010, Republicans are still trying to undermine the work that has been done by Democrats to make healthcare more affordable and more accessible. How can, if at all, healthcare be protected by Congress? Is there any legislation that can be put forward to prevent a future Republican Congress and White House just stripping away healthcare like we're seeing now under the Trump administration? You know, I don't think legislation would be the answer to that because any legislation can be undone by the next Congress. But what we can do is when Democrats have control of the government and we can pass whatever uh, health care package we put forward, what we do is we make sure that it is implemented before the end of that session of Congress, before the next major elections, because once you do that, it's very hard to unring that bell. So even though we have seen the protections of the Affordable Care Act be chipped away at, we definitely still are better off than we were before it was passed. The final topic I'd like to discuss with you is one that's incredibly current. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced that the House of Representatives will move forward with an official impeachment inquiry against President Donald Trump. In her announcement, Pelosi said that the president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. Having seen what Donald Trump has done over the years since he was elected, do you think that Donald Trump should be impeached? And how would you vote if you were in Congress right now? So I think that Donald Trump has done some egregious things while he's been president. And based on the evidence I have seen, I would vote to impeach him. I think that the Democrats' job, in fact, all of Congress's job, is there is to use these inquiries to lay out a case of absolutely every item that Donald Trump has done, whether it's unethical, illegal, immoral, or impeachable. There's been a lot of conversation about whether or not Congress has been doing its job up until now, whether the House should have begun an impeachment inquiry against Donald Trump at an earlier stage. Do you think that's the case? Do you think that Donald Trump has shown in the past that he's committed impeachable offenses? Do you think that Congress really has failed in a way to fulfill its role as a check and balance on the presidency? You know, I'm, I'm not really sure if they have failed, but I'm sure glad we're taking these steps now. And I think that this is a very big step, and I understand the the importance of making it and making sure that 
there was support for it, but I also think that there have been a lot of calls uh, from within Congress and without um, to to make this move sooner than we have. The concern about launching an impeachment inquiry by the House of Representatives has been that when it reaches the Senate, if the House decides that Donald Trump should be impeached, is that the Senate will simply reject any attempt to impeach Donald Trump and newspapers will report it as Senate clears president of wrongdoing, etc., etc. headlines like that. Do you think that there is a risk that this will backfire on Democrats, that because of the fact that the House is controlled by Democrats and the Senate is controlled by Republicans, this will be ultimately unsuccessful and Republicans will be able to weaponize it heading into 2020 to damage the Democratic nominee? You know, I think that every member of Congress has sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, and ultimately that's what this is about. Um, and I think that I, I do fear that the Senate will not vote to remove President Trump from office if he is impeached in the House. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this is about taking a stance against corrupt and illegal actions by the executive branch, that Congress is indeed obligated to provide that check and balance for. And let's put people on the record. Let's make every Republican in the House and in the Senate actually put their name to what they think. And um, I think history will show a dereliction of duty. Elisa Cardinal, thank you for joining me. All right, thank you. That was Elisa Cardinal, who's running for Congress in Texas's 2nd Congressional District. You can find out more about her on Twitter at Elisa Cardinal or at elisacardinal.com. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.